Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Berm. Tonight we find out how BC's Harbor Air reached a major milestone in its quest to electrify its entire fleet of seaplanes, carrying out the first point-to-point flight between Victoria and Vancouver's airports using a historic De Havilland Beaver completely retrofitted to operate on 100% battery power. We begin our week-long look into the many issues surrounding back-to-school this year, and we start with tips on how to cope with rising costs for just about everything that students need come September. But first, new polling from Angus Reid shows just how many Canadians are struggling with rising costs and interest rate hikes. More than half say they just can't keep pace with the current cost of living, and 80% of us have reduced some kind of spending in the last few months alone. You look into the broader impact, what that means. Got some good news for the folks in Saskatchewan today. Premier Scott Moe announced today that the government will be providing a $500 tax credit check to each resident who paid their taxes, who filed taxes, aged 18 and older in the province, um, sometime in the fall, so people can continue to grapple with, uh, or help them out at least, when it comes to grappling with all these high costs. Higher resource prices are driving our economy, and they are creating thousands of new jobs. This has greatly improved our budget position from a deficit to a surplus. And that's good news. But it also means the cost of almost everything that you buy has gone up. You own the resources, and you should benefit when those resource prices are high. So this fall, we'll be sending a $500 affordability tax credit check to everyone in Saskatchewan aged 18 and older to help with some of those rising costs. Now, it sounds like a nice idea, and it comes on the same day that new polling from Angus Reid showed that people in Saskatchewan are among those in the country most worried about their financial situation, given the rise in inflation and interest rates. And it's always popular to give away money, of course. The problem is, is that the way inflation works right now is that it's really a supply issue, not a demand issue. So if you give lots of people money to spend, and there's not that much to spend it on, or, you know, supply is low, then what happens to prices? They stay high, don't they? You know, if you own a place in Saskatchewan, I'm not accusing the people of Saskatchewan of any malfeasance here, but if you were thinking of putting on a big sale this fall, you might think twice if you thought a bunch of people are about to get a bunch of money they can go spend. So I'm not sure it's that effective in terms of fighting inflation. It certainly helps to get $500. Obviously, it's a big deal. But does it actually help people with affordability? Eh, I don't know. It's certainly better than nothing, I guess. Let me know what you think. Do you agree? Do you disagree? Is it a good idea? Is it a bad idea when demand is still low? Maybe it won't have an impact at all. But you always get the idea that if the inflationary issue that we're having right now is a question of low supply, not low demand, did you give everybody money? Well, then you're just raising demand for already low supply. And then what happens? Prices stay high generally. Maybe not this time around because a lot of it's commodities and so on. But anyway, let me know what you think. 877-399-9898 is the text line. 877-399-9898. Let me know who you are and where you are. We'll share share those throughout the show. And first off tonight, let's get to that polling I was talking about. We are getting a pretty clear picture of the impact that high inflation and rising interest rates are having on Canadians. And it's not a pretty one. A new survey from Angus Reid released today shows that over half of Canadians say they can't keep pace with the current cost of living. And 80% of us have reduced some kind of spending in the last few months. And that despite the fact that inflation actually slowed a bit in July from what we've been seeing in previous months. Well, joining me now with more on their cross-country financial temperature check and what it means is Shachi Curl. She's president of the Angus Reid Institute. Thanks so much for your time tonight. Hey, Ben. How are you? I'm good. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh, this, was, this wasn't all that surprising, but I guess it, if you look back at February when you last did this, you are seeing a trend, and the trend is towards people are getting more and more worried for obvious reasons. Well, that's exactly it. It's the anxiety, and now it's the behavior change. So people were worried about the increasing cost of living, They were worried about increasing inflation, but now we're seeing the commensurate change in the way they are handling that, which is they're sitting on money. And more than that, they're not just sitting on it. They are using it to pay down debt. So there are a whole bunch of factors, whether you're in Saskatchewan, whether you're in Alberta, whether you're in B.C., whether you're in Ontario or all points in between, we are dealing with in this country today, kind of a perfect storm of factors. And I hate 
using that phrase perfect storm because there's nothing perfect (laughs) about it. It's like an awful storm. So particularly in the cities, the cost of housing is going through the roof. Uh, Housing prices themselves are dropping. So what's happened? Rent is going up. So either way, you're not avoiding uh, a rising or, or stagnant cost of housing where it's not going down. It's, it's either staying where it is or it's going up. And by the way, if you're somebody who's staring down the barrel of a mortgage rene- renegotiation, uh, you know, God bless you, because the days of borrowing at one point something percent are long gone and have been replaced with numbers that are far higher than that. So the cost of housing is up. The cost of purchasing just about anything, and including day-to-day staples, groceries, gasoline, etc., also up. At the same time, people are noticing what savings they have, if they have savings, uh, are being chewed through. Because it's not as though savings rates at the bank have risen commensurately with the cost of borrowing money. It used to be, yeah, your mortgage was 14%, but your savings rate was also in the double digits. That's not a thing. Now you've got higher cost of borrowing, you have very low savings rates, and people are feeling the squeeze from all sides. And this really represents a, a change in era, a total paradigm shift where we, you know, people, Ben, your age, my age, We've been on a tear for more than 10, 15 years where you could buy stuff when you wanted, at a rate you wanted, at a price you wanted. You could borrow at a rate that didn't hurt, and stuff arrived when you wanted it to. And it was all relatively reasonably priced. That's over. And we're back into a period of almost our parents' generation, our grandparents' generation, where you actually had to put the brakes on spending at different times in order to... Uh, not only stay afloat, but maybe to achieve some of your spending goals. Yeah, I noticed that, uh, that we've already seen some pretty, pretty drastic behavioral changes. The fact, I think it was 41% who are doing less driving now because of the price of gas. That's an astounding number. It's huge. And then it's also people who are already reporting uh, cutting back on things that we call discretionary spending. So that could be anything from eating out to going to a concert to you talked about going to the PE. You know, maybe some families uh, this, this season are thinking twice about going to the summer fair or a summer outdoors concert. Uh, you know, those beer gardens, they sounded like fun. Maybe it's something that people are foregoing. Uh, you look at that in relation to the number of people who say that they're delaying or putting off or canceling a big trip or a vacation who are deferring a big ticket item, including maybe a major home or appliance purchase, people who are cutting back on the amount of charitable giving that they say that they give. So that's something that's falling into line. And Ben, here's a really big one that sometimes gets overlooked. About one in five Canadians say that they are deferring making a contribution to their RSP or their TFSA because the money just isn't there. So this isn't just about cutting back on the extras or the nice-to-haves. It's also about making really tough decisions around saying we cannot afford to make the investments in our future financial security because that cash has to go to more immediate needs. One of the things that you pointed out, I don't think it had changed that much, much since February, but the fact is uh, it still shows just how little wiggle room have. The sheer number of people who couldn't incur a surprise expense of $1,000 or more. That's right. So you see nearly half say that they are that close to the edge around not being able to absorb uh, more than $1,000 of an unexpected hit. Uh, the other really striking finding was around the notion of an unexpected windfall. Suppose someone uh, just gave you $5,000, what would you do with it? In the past, we've seen more people saying, you know what, we would just kind of splurge, we'd do something nice with it for ourselves, or we would invest in our house or invest in a car, or we'd take a big trip. Uh, now we see uh, a majority saying, Uh, that they would either be using it to pay for day-to-day needs or they would be using it to service and pay down debt. So that debt burden, particularly at a time when when cost of living is so high and cost of housing is so high, it becomes an increasing, it's it's like the piano hanging by a thread over somebody's head in, in the old cartoons. It's just something that 
now is looming deeper and 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 in a more threatening way than has been in the past. And certainly when it comes to perception, I mean, one thing that I found really interesting about this, we could talk about it when we come back, is that a lot of this too is perception of what's happening because people can't, you can't, this isn't about spin or politics. This is about people going into things, buying things they've been buying for a very long time and thinking, wow, my dollar doesn't go as far as it did six months ago or a year ago. I'm speaking with Shachi Curl. She's president of the Angus Reid Institute. We're talking about new polling they have out today uh, that show the impacts of both higher interest rates uh, and and rising uh, cost of living, the rising cost of living on all of us. A majority of Canadians now say they're struggling uh, to keep up with the rising cost of living. A lot are worried about debt. A lot are worried about their jobs, believe it or not, in a job market that is that has unprecedentedly low unemployment. We'll talk about all of that, digging a little more to those numbers when we come back. Well, it's great to have Shachi Curl with us this half hour, president of the Angus Reid Institute. We're talking about a new poll they have out today that's really a financial temperature check of the country, and it's running hot. People are worried about their money. People are worried about prices, as Shachi compared it to the piano hanging by a thread over you uh, for a lot of us. You noticed um, there were certainly some interesting demographic differences here. Uh, clearly, a lot of younger people are cutting back on spending fast these days, and that's something, I mean, this is a generation that hasn't grown up in sort of recessionary times, for instance? Well, no, that's exactly it. This is the first time in the adult lives of a lot of Canadians where the notion of higher interest rates or having to put the brakes on spending or having to make trade-offs is a real thing. We've all been, as a country addicted to cheap money and free flow of goods uh, for a really long time. That, for the time being, is at an end. I'm not an economist, but the economic experts, the folks at the Bank of Canada, say that, you know, inflation is necessary uh, in order to cool, or sorry, not inflation is necessary, uh, pardon me, but higher interest rates are necessary right. uh, to to cool uh, high inflation and to, to, to really pull some of the levers down in terms of gearing down on the on on runaway um, spending and 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 having the economy overheat. Now, that all may be very very true, and I'm sure it is true. Again, let's let's not question the experts here. That's not the point. But the important thing to remember is it has a real effect on real people in re- real households, and that's what we're seeing now. We're seeing that anxiety. We're seeing that uncertainty, and if that continues. For an extended period of time, remember, you know, there were there were stories then in the last few weeks about how, well, we've reached peak inflation. The worst is over. The worst may be over, but it's a little bit like COVID. The crazy still continues for a while. The uncertainty, the ongoing cycles, the problems, it doesn't mean that, there, that that is over. It's just that perhaps we will see some alleviation. It doesn't mean a return to normal just yet. And so what, what are the knock-on effects for every family or every, every household that says, okay, we're going to rein in discretionary spending. Maybe that has an impact on eating out. Maybe things like dry cleaning don't get done quite as often or trips to the salon or trips to the, 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 the hair place or going to the movies or, or sports or concerts or all the things that we do in our lives. Well, what is the knock-on effect on the supporting businesses that rely on a certain amount of demand in order not only to uh, to make a living for themselves, but to employ other people? So we don't know ultimately where this is going to settle or shake out. A big driver of a thriving economy obviously has to do with employment levels. And we know that employment levels continue to be high, but if people stop spending money on stuff and a lot of people who rely on employment in those sectors uh, are suddenly in a much more precarious situation so what does this look like come october or december or january or february of next year well, particularly if energy prices start to climb up again, and we're seeing it in uh, in Europe, specifically in the UK, that they're worried about high energy prices. That uh, certainly there's no idea that inflation is is cooling there. We may have we may not actually be in a situation where inflation is cooling all that much. It, it did in gas prices in July, but it didn't for a lot of other stuff. I, I, this is probably this was not in your survey, but I know you can put your political hat on, so I'm going to have you put it on just for a minute. 
you know, the questions politicians always ask of themselves and of the people that they're that they're ostensibly that voted them in is, are they better off now than they were when I was elected? And if this continues, it strikes me that it's going to have quite the repercussions throughout a lot of things. And politics is one of them, because so far, politicians and it's, you know, there's perhaps little they can do. I mean, Scott Moe's handing out 500 bucks, but you know, people will look to politicians and say, well, what have you been doing about this? And how come my life is, how come I'm worse off than I was five years ago? You know, inflation, cost of living, affordability, these are the wicked problems that any government faces. And it really doesn't matter where they sit on the political spectrum, whether they're left or they're right. Uh, this is a problem that comes right to their doorstep. And there's, there is, to your point, not a whole lot that they can effectively do in the short term or even in the medium term. So uh, we saw how governments uh, really came in very quickly to the rescue of populations in the early days and, frankly, the early years, six months, a year, 18 months of COVID, there was an incredible amount of support for people so that they would be kept whole, so that they would Uh, be prevented from being plunged perhaps into really serious affordability problems. Well, you know, fast forward (laughs) two and a half years, and we're now into a situation where there's only so many more levers they can pull. And the real question is, at what point are they able to pull it? Now, Scott Moe's government uh, spoke to the windfall that uh, his province is facing as a result of increased commodity prices, which affords his government the ability to redistribute some wealth in the short term at a time where people are otherwise perhaps hurting and not necessarily um, sharing in the benefit of those of those increased commodity prices and the impact on provincial coffers. But if you live in a province that is not necessarily as dependent on commodity prices, Uh, that relief isn't necessarily there for you. And what relief is there always has to be weighed or balanced by a government on timing. So you pull this lever now, what if it gets worse later and you can't pull the lever again? Uh, You wait too long to pull the lever, you're in a big problem with your population. Sachi Curl, thank you so much for your time tonight. Fascinating study. Thanks for having me. The problem we're having with inflation is that it's a supply issue. Uh, there's lots of stuff that people want to buy. Maybe less so now. We're just hearing, hearing about inflation and people cutting back. Uh, but if you hand out more money, people tend to spend it, and they tend to spend it fairly quickly. Um, so sometimes that just exacerbates the issue. It might not be the case this time around. But let me know what you think. 877-399-9898 is the text line. Um, James in Edmonton says, as an Albertan, I didn't complain about the Ralph Bucks. No, I don't remember many people complaining about the Ralph Bucks. Brent in Edmonton, as far as inflation and cost of living is concerned, says it's my line of credit that's killing me. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of concern. One of the things that really stood out in that Angus Reid poll was concern over debt. Um, 50% or more of Canadians are really worried about debt, uh, but specifically people who are younger. Um, you know, anyone between the ages of 35 and 54, they say they have too much debt load, about 52%. Um, and that group holds 57% of the debt in Canada. Imagine 57% of the debt is held by 35 to 54-year-olds, and they don't represent that much more than a third of the adult population. So lots of people struggling with debt and with, of course, with um, the cost of borrowing continuing to rise, uh, a problem for a lot of people. So maybe the $500 tax credit, you put it towards paying down some debt, probably a good idea. Well, we're seeing the impact of the cost of living right across Canada now, the rise in the cost of living. But one of the areas that's of particular interest to a lot of people is contract negotiations. We're seeing it out here in BC in the public sector. It's happening all across the country and in the private sector, of course, as well. In July, the governor of the Bank of Canada told a Canadian Federation of Independent Business Gathering that inflation is temporary and that it should not be built into any wage contracts. Tiff Macklem uh, got some angry responses to that. Now, Unifor is the largest private sector union in the country. It represents some 315 thousand workers in more than two dozen sectors. It was formed nearly a decade ago in a merger between the Canadian Auto Workers Union and the Communications, Energy and Paper Workers Union of Canada. It has hundreds of collective agreements up for renewal this year. 
It also happens to have a new leader at the helm after former National President Jerry Dias, perhaps the most recognizable figure in the Canadian labour movement, retired under a dark cloud of a kickback scandal last winter. The new person at the helm is Lana Payne. She's a longtime labour activist and the first woman to lead Unifor as National President. Payne is a former journalist as well and past president of the Newfoundland and Labrador Federation of Labour. And she joins me now. Thank you so much for your time. Congratulations. Thank you. Thanks so much. It's great to join you. So, uh, it's, I mean, this is a very, um, I wouldn't call it tough, but this is a very pivotal, pivotal, excuse me, pivotal time to be in your position. How That's are you settling in? It's been, yeah, pivotal. It's only been a few weeks, but how are you settling into the new rule? Yes, uh, it's been uh, not quite two weeks. Uh, doing uh, really well, but I think it's uh, to to all of what you uh, spoke to in your intro, it is a, a really... Um, pivotal time for working people in Canada. We're just coming out of uh, many decades where wages barely uh, kept pace with inflation and, and in fact, you know, lagged uh, far behind uh, inflation over the last uh, 30 years. Uh, we have a bit of a tightening labor market, although we've seen uh, obviously some of that uh, changing in the last month or two as a result of some of the actions taken by the Bank of Canada around interest rates. Uh, in an attempt to, to slow uh, economic uh, growth. Um, but the reality is, uh, you know, we came out of this pandemic. Workers uh, really saw the value of their work uh, put through a, a positive lens. Uh, it, it, there was no doubt uh, many workers, particularly those on the front lines, healthcare workers, uh, pretty much everybody uh, in, in sectors that we were depending on, warehousing, uh, all of those uh, important sectors throughout the pandemic, we saw saw a real uh, kind of re- redefining of people's work and and the value of that work because a lot of us wouldn't have been able to get through the pandemic without these workers. And now, uh, you know, couple that with with the steep uh, increase in inflation, uh, a bit of a tightening labor market, and we see an opportunity, obviously, at the bargaining table to make up some lost ground. Uh, so to see these uh, remarks from the Bank of Canada was, you know, probably not surprising, but extremely disappointing. And and also their their medicine for uh, bringing down inflation is really uh, going to going to punish uh, a lot of working families uh, in this country. And uh, we've got to start having a, a better conversation uh, in Canada about how we tackle things like inflation instead of basically making workers pay the price when we all know. Uh, what's been happening is a lot of corporations have been raising their prices because they can, uh, whether you're talking about gas or whether you're talking about food. These things are, are far outstripping, and uh, we can see uh, profit margins going up considerably uh, as a result, uh, for example, 2021 and throughout, uh, throughout this year. Uh, so a lot of that money is going into profits, and workers are basically saying, look, it's time. We, we, we want our share of the pie. How do you, I mean, how do you go about doing that? Because clearly a lot of companies will be listening to what the Bank of Canada is saying, that uh, that this is temporary uh, and that uh, wage increases. We've had economists on this show say the very same thing, that if there are, suddenly we get into a wage increase cycle due to inflation or perceptions of inflation, uh, that we are going to exacerbate this. At the same time, you, you don't want to be in a society where inflation far outstrips wage gain. Right. I mean, it just doesn't work in the long run. So how is there a happy balance in there? And well, and does do we ever see the prices come back? Dan, that's the problem. I mean, once you once you start seeing grocery prices go up the way that they've had, for for example, 10 percent over the last year, uh, you know, an an incredible uh, increase in, in, in prices and. And and do we really think as inflation comes down that those prices are going to come down too? It's it's very doubtful. And as a result, now workers will have had their purchasing power uh, cut considerably. So there is only only one way to to catch up here and make sure that people you know have decent living standards through this. And uh, that's the work we're we're doing at the collective bargaining table. And the reality is. If businesses want workers right now, uh, they're going to have to pay for them. And we're, we're seeing that in many sectors. And the, I think part of the challenge, I heard you mention public sector uh, negotiations uh, just um, just in, in the intro. And in many, uh, many provinces, we have, uh, you know, really horrible legislation that ba- basically prevents uh, fair and free collective bargaining. And 
as a result, we're looking at a crisis in some sectors in the public sector, healthcare being one of them. Uh, so, you know, governments have really kind of got to get their head around uh, what's happening in our labor market and employers are going to have to get used to uh, a tightening labor market for some time now. And um, that's that's the reality of the world we live in. So it's it's about time that we uh, we start making those adjustments and that people uh, working people are, are catching up. And that's that's been our priority uh, all of this year. And we've probably got about 400 uh, collective agreements. Uh, to finish up before the end of this year, uh, and uh, and every single table, this is the the main uh, the main issue being discussed is is how do we keep pace uh, with what's going on out there, and I think you know we also have to give some consideration to what's actually causing inflation. Uh, it, it right now, if you if you analyze all of this and you listen to some of the economists uh, on all uh, levels of the spectrum, uh, this is not workers' wages that are driving inflation at the moment. It, it's the price of, of of goods and supply chain issues uh, around the world. So, you know, uh, doing harm uh, to working families isn't going to change any of that. When you look ahead, I mean, you have lots of experience at this. You've been doing this for the better part of three decades. You were a journalist as well, yeah. I know. When you look at all of this, I mean, I think back sometimes to the 70s. And, you know, I grew up in the 70s and, you know, strikes and frequent strikes. Are, 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 we, are you concerned at all that we're heading into sort of a, a winter of discontent, so to speak, not to, to coin an old phrase? Uh, I think we're already in that period of discontent. Uh, last year, we had more disputes in our union uh, than we had at any other previous year. Uh, this year started off the same. They're not long disputes, but but they are setting a, a tone and the, the temperature of the time. Uh, there is renewed worker militancy, and it is because of all of these factors that I've, I've talked to you about coming out of that pandemic, the you know inflation just chewing into people's paychecks, workers at the bottom of the scale not being able to you know, make ends meet. Uh, minimum wages are still relatively very low across the country. And um, and as a result, uh, this is also an organizing moment for unions. Uh, we've seen it in our own union. Other unions are probably witnessing it too. Uh, workers uh, are seeing the value of being in a union. And so, uh, you know, we've had any number of, of new groups of workers join our union in the past year. Uh, so, but the opportunity is there for unions to grow, uh, and I actually think you know we're in a we're in an important moment right now to be able to play some catch up, uh, notwithstanding uh, what what the Bank of Canada is, is trying to do at the moment. Um, whether we get back to those battle days of the seventies, I I don't know, uh, but I can tell you that we're we're certainly uh, in the, the recipe is there for it. I'm speaking with Lana Payne. She's the new president of Unifor, the first woman to hold the national president's title at Unifor, which is Canada's largest public, private sector union, rather, representing more than 300,000 uh, Canadians. When we come back, we'll talk a bit more about Unifor itself. There's some fences to be mended, or at least some uh, some unity to be found within the organization as well. Uh, and just uh, more about what comes up next. Uh, we saw Ford announce some layoffs today, not unionized members, but still a reminder that in a changing economy as well, there are you know, there are perils for workers out there. We'll be back with that. Lana Payne is with us this half hour, the new national president, relatively new, of Unifor, Canada's largest private sector union, representing some 300,000 workers across a couple of dozen sectors. Um, we've been talking a bit just about the, the situation right now for organized labor in this country and the fight for wages that match uh, cost of living increases in some of the possibilities that lie ahead when uh, that fight uh, continues and some of the comments made uh, by the Bank of Canada governor about how companies shouldn't be considering inflation when they go into this latest round of negotiations, contract negotiations, because it is, in fact, temporary. Um, you and, and many other people, uh, Lana, were, were quite upset by what Tiff Macklem had to say. Does that uh, does that continue or is there is there a kernel of truth in, in it? Is there again, I guess I started off by saying, is there a happy medium between trying to get fair wage increases for your members uh, at the same time as trying to keep inflation in check? Or is it a non-starter, do you think? Uh, well, not the way the Bank of Canada is doing it. I think that there are lots of things that uh, can be done to, to deal with inflation when you look at uh, the cost of some things that, that Canadians have to pay for, uh, whether it's, uh, you know, big cost items like childcare, whether it's transit. You know, these are, these are things that government can certainly help 
uh, with, with, with respect to the affordability crisis that many Canadians are, are facing right now. Uh, I, I, I just think that this, this, this idea that, you know, uh, raising interest rates, which is such a blunt instrument and, uh, you know, targets everything, uh, whereas, uh, you know, there can be some more targeted measures here that can help with all of this. And to have a, an approach that actually puts workers and working families at, you know, the, the center of monetary policy in, instead of what we're seeing at the moment, which is, you know, a 1980s approach uh, to economic policy, I, I think we can do much better. And, uh, and right now, the, the Bank of Canada is, uh, is really uh, not being helpful uh, with respect to what it is we need to see uh, to address the affordability crisis. They're actually making it worse. Do you see that? Do you see the impact of those words when you sit down to negotiate? Well, the reality is, is you know, despite what the Bank of Canada is saying, most employers realize that they got to keep a, a skilled workforce. They've got to retain uh, who they have, and at the same time, uh, look to recruit new workers. and And they're not going to do it with wages at the bottom of the barrel. They're not going to do it with unsafe working conditions. Uh, that that is the reality of the time uh, we're living in. Uh, so, uh, you know, I'm I'm not sure when the bank. Uh, gives that kind of advice that many employers can really realistically take it. Uh, they're fighting for uh, for skilled workers. They're fighting for workers out there. And uh, the reality is we've had many employers come to us and actually want to open up uh, agreements early uh, so that they can address what's going on in the labor market. Uh, you know, so maybe maybe the bank needs to come down on on Main Street and have a look at what's going on in the real world. Just to switch a bit, because I know you, you were elected a, at the beginning of the month and you've been in the position for a few weeks. You came in really on a whole, uh, uh, you know, on a campaign really about transparency and accountability. We know what happened with the previous yeah. leader who was a very well-known individual, Jerry Dias. Within the organization itself, um, how much fence mending has to be done and how difficult will it be? Well, I think it's really interesting. I've been asked about this a couple of times. Um, I was really clear throughout uh, the campaign uh, to become president um, about the kind of union that I think is possible for us, about the kind of union that, uh, you know, we we signed up for in in 2013, uh, a democratic, militant, accountable and transparent union. Uh, And there are a number of things that we have to do to make sure that we get there. Um, And I've I've talked, uh, you know, openly about those things. Uh, And I think... The reality is, is once the election was over, uh, you could almost see in the room, the convention room, uh, you know, our, our local leaders and activists saying, OK, let's get on with it now. We've, we've got a job to do out there. Our job is to put our members at the heart of the work that we do and to fight for them every single day. And uh, and, you know, it, we're, we're trade unionists and we, we understand um, that this is this is a, a tough period that we're all in, but the reality is it it will be made easier uh, the more solidarity we build. And I'm not saying that uh, you know there's any shortcuts to this work, but you roll up your sleeves, you get out there, you work with your members, you empower your bargaining committees, and we make gains for working people. That's my job, and that's the job uh, of our staff and our local leaders, and uh, they understand it well. So I think when you when you focus on the work at hand, uh, then then wounds get healed. And uh, it was really clear uh, that that, you know, our local leaders in that room, all 1700 of them, uh, it was like we turned a page uh, by Thursday. And uh, now we're on with with building our union and uh, and 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 building a a better environment uh, for working people throughout the country. I do have a few minutes left, uh, Lana. I mean, I've been a uniform member in the past. I think lots of journalists have been at some point. Yeah. Um, perhaps part of the problem I always felt was that there was too much of a cult of personality within, and it's, and certainly uniforms not alone, but this idea of the, of the one at the top who makes things happen. Is it time to move on from that? Because it can be destructive, obviously, when things go wrong for the person at the top. I think there needs to be a balance. You need to have strong leadership at the top, but I think the way you build a union is that you, you, you build worker power. And, and I know when I say those words, people are like, well, what do you mean by that? Well, the reality is I mean exactly that. You, you, you work with locals. You make sure that it isn't just about one person. You're empowering locals to do the work that they need to do in their workplaces. And, and, and you build your union that way. And I think, 
you know, it has to be about a shared leadership. We have uh, strong leaders in every region of the country. I rely on them for advice. Their, their, their ear is close to the ground, which is really, really important. And, uh, and that's how you build it. And, at, but at the same time, uh, you know, I'm the main spokesperson for Unifor, so that means I've got to be strong in my beliefs and, and lead that way too. Uh, but I think it, that there is a balance that can be reached uh, with, with respect to the kind of leadership uh, that we put forward. A lot of pain. The word I was looking for when we first started out was pivotal. So you've taken the reins of the biggest private sector union in the country at a pivotal time, uh, no doubt. Uh, thank you very much for your time tonight. Congratulations once again. Look forward to speaking to you again. Yes, I'd love to. Thanks so much. One of the things that living in Victoria uh, is always interesting to look at if you live here is how many people are curious or like to just stand around and watch the float planes come and go. Victoria's float plane terminal terminal is right in the Inner Harbor, so it's right in the center of things, really. Um, So is Vancouver's to some extent, but it's in Coal Harbor, so it's a little bit more out of the way. If you walk down, obviously, to Canada Place and so on, you'll see them. But in Victoria, they're kind of hard to miss. So uh, lots of people here are really fascinated by uh, float planes. The majority of them belong to a company called Harbor Air. Uh, They fly to lots of different places uh, around uh, the province and beyond to Seattle as well. And there's been something fascinating happening in the skies uh, between Vancouver and Vancouver Island of late, thanks to Harbor Air. Um, Again, they operate this fleet of seaplanes that connect various spots in the region, including the Lower Mainland, Victoria, Nanaimo, Tofino, the Sunshine Coast, even Seattle. They carry about 500,000 passengers a year on 30,000 commercial flights. So they're a pretty big operation, 12 operating routes. But they eventually want to convert their entire fleet into electric battery aircraft. And so last week, they reached a milestone. This has been going on for a while. They've had some other test flights. But for the very first time, they completed a successful test flight of an electric electric battery seaplane between Vancouver and Victoria's International Airport, a distance of about 72 kilometers across the Strait of Georgia. It was their first point-to-point test flight, not their last, but their first. As I mentioned, Harbor Air intends to eventually convert its entire fleet into e-planes or electric battery aircraft. Joining me with more, joining me now with more on this is Erica Holtz. She's an engineering and quality manager uh, at Harbor Air and lead engineer for this project. And Sean Braden, who's vice president of maintenance at Harbor Air. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Thank you. Thank you. Happy to be here. Uh, Erica, tell me a bit about the milestone because I, I understood there'd been test flights. I've been following this for a bit. I'm in Victoria, so obviously Harbor Air is uh, sort of a, a real feature of our landscape here. Uh, tell me about the the importance of this point to point test flight. Sure. So we've been flying for a couple of years now and we've done uh, over 50 flights, but they've all been local to YVR. So we leave the, the river here in YVR, we fly out, we test some things and we fly back. But a big thing about proving that this technology is going to be viable for what we need it for, for the, the jumps that Harbor Air makes, is we needed to prove we could do a point-to-point flight. So uh, this opportunity came up to participate in the open house events um, at the museum. And uh, so we sat for probably about three weeks going through different testing to make sure that it was possible. And we were really excited to, uh, to, to do the first point-to-point flight with this aircraft, just to, so we could tell everybody, look, it can make it. It can go from one point to another point. It's not just doing local test flights here at YVR. For any listeners who may not know YVR, uh, there is actually a uh, Harbor Air terminal at Vancouver's International Airport. It's a little bit off where you, if you've come through the major airport, it's a little bit off of that, but it runs on the Fraser River, right? So uh, you have a terminal there. Uh, um, Sean, tell me a bit about just this where this project started, because I know it, it goes back a while now since you first embarked on this idea of the e the EC plane, so to speak. Yeah, the, I, um, there was a few of us sitting around. I know Greg was definitely instrumental. He got himself a Tesla and wanted to see why can't we make an airplane electric. So we looked at trying to see how it uh, how it could be done and started trying to find players to work with to uh, make it happen. And one of those players became Magniex. And once we got that partnership going, it was just a matter of time. We all decided that we got to make this go. And it was try and make it go by the end of 2019. And we got her done. It was a lot of work. Um, it was a lot of questions and answers, lots of little problems with uh, creative solutions, but we got it all done by 2019, just. And uh, now we're working on the next one. So uh, 
Sean, what have been the challenges when it comes to trying to outfit one of these? I mean, I think people may know what a de Havilland Beaver looks like, uh, but may not know what the challenges would be in trying to turn one from a turboprop into a uh, into battery power. Well, there's the challenges of trying to make sure that we can meet the <clears throat> standards that this aircraft's going to have to meet. And that's the big challenge now because the standards don't exist yet. So, but back with the version one, it was just a prototype experimental. And uh, we could have done like a tabletop exercise and gone, got a bunch of engineers together, pilots, and figure out what the plane would need to do, how it would all work, what it would look like. But until you do it, then you find out all kinds of glitches and problems that come up that you hadn't thought of. And then you've got to come up with a creative solution or sometimes a simple solution. So there's been a bunch of stuff we've learned at while we did it um, and built it that uh, we had to overcome. Generally, one of the larger issues was products, especially products from other vendors where it was said to be X dimension, the little widget or box is going to be, you know, 12 inches by 10 inches and 12 inches, and it's going to weigh 10 pounds and it's going to do everything you need. And then by the time we actually built the plane, that box is now 24 inches by 12 inches by three feet and weighs 80 pounds. Um, theoretically, at the beginning of the project, everybody thought it would turn out the way plan A was and wasn't until after we built it that, ooh, yeah, we can't make all that bit in that box. So I think it was across the board, every single component that we received was 10% heavier at least. Just try and come up with creative ways to solve some of these problems as the project evolved because what we thought was going to be 10 pounds now turned out to be 80 pounds. And now it's, Ooh, we're heavy where you're going to have to either remove batteries or, or it doesn't fit stuff, in the door anymore. Or, yeah, yeah. It doesn't. So listeners understand because when, when Magnex came to you, they were really looking for something, uh, you know, sort of short routes, uh, planes that could be adapted, but this is really trailblazing stuff. Is it not? It is. It's um, we, the one thing that hardware, has is as part of the harbor air fabric here is we do a lot of short legs so we're doing 20 minute flights 15 minute flights 30 minute flights none of our legs that we have some that are quite uh, uh long we're going down to seattle and Kelowna, tofino places like that but majority of our flights are short legs and we do a lot of tours which are 20 minute tours 30 minute tours so the electric um battery type power supply and electric aircraft that whole idea with the current technology does fit it is doable it's just tweaking it to make it um better and better each year to make it things uh lighter more efficient and all the rest and if of it. you look at it just like in our in our beaver fleets uh none of them fly those long legs they're all flying flying the short legs and that's a conversation we had with transport canada they're like well if you have this electric beaver it's going to have different missions than you already have and the answer is no it's going to fly the exact missions that it already flies for harbor air yeah so nothing nothing really changes there and the fact that we're over water basically 99 percent of the time and uh so if we do have an issue with this is with the experimental now that uh, while we're doing the flight testing, we got some pretty specific weather limits. We make sure that the wind isn't um, isn't picked up, the wave state's low and everything else. So we can be out testing out over the water. If anything goes wrong for any reason, we just land on the water, taxi it back, tow it back, anything like that. We've We've got a fairly safe fairly low risk type flight test. But out of all 52 flights we've performed so yep. far, we haven't had to do that once. We've never <laughs> used the boat or anything been uh, absolutely uh, spectacular on that and like that we did a lot of testing and a lot of checking and everything else for this point-to-point -point flight and when we were all done we were all very confident it was going to go perfect and it, it exceeded did. expectations yes, actually if, if anything yeah. we were... how so you, you ended up being ended up landing with with uh, with lots of juice to spare so to speak sort of yeah it, we definitely didn't get anywhere we, we were getting close to the uh, a sort of emptying the tank, but there was still um, power left in the tank. And also we never got even close to our reserve. Yeah, our our so. engineering department might've been a little conservative in our estimates just to make sure it was very safe. But uh, we, I, we believe we picked up a little bit of a tailwind. He managed to cut a little few corners uh, uh, on, the, on what we had planned for the, the past since it was just done on Google Earth. And uh, so we ended up with, yes, more, more juice left in the tank than we expected. So it was fantastic. And we're really looking forward to bringing it back tonight. Yeah. So, yeah, that's right. Uh, Erica, tell me a bit about just the advantages that, that 
electrification holds um, for Harbor Air, specifically when it comes to these smaller planes? Because you have several. I've been I've been on several of the different ones, uh, and those smaller De Havilland Beavers. What's the advantage to to electrification? Do you think? Well, aside from the big one, uh, I mean, like our our company is really really into the, the green technologies, right? We've been a carbon better for a very long time. This is this is in line with our, our corporate culture, uh, so that's a big part of it. But also, um, there's the noise. There's going to be a, a distinct difference. A lot of the noise does come from the prop, but uh, in the design, we've discovered that we're going to be able to, to slow the prop down a little bit. Uh, we could even slow it further down during cruise. We're hoping to get a bit of footage of that for everybody so they can they can hear the difference. It's it's a very different sound uh, on takeoff, and it's a very different sound in cruise, and it's going to really cut down on the, on the noise uh, issues that happen in the harbors especially. Where to now? I mean, I know that that the, the the long-term plan is to electrify the whole fleet, but I gather we're we're still a ways off. We're still doing the point-to-point uh, test flights and so on. Uh, where where do you stand on on sort of the long journey towards electrification at Harbor Air? Well, so uh, we're building a second aircraft. It's going to be our certification version. So that's the one where we can do the validation flight testing and prove that it meets the rules that eventually get written by Transport Canada and the other civil aviation authorities. So we're building that right now. That'll that'll occur over the next six months or so. Hopefully going to be able to flight test it later next year and certify by early 2024. And that will allow us to fly passengers in the beaver. We can convert as many beavers as we want at that point. Um, so that's that's a 2024 kind of thing. At that point, we would start to look at uh, other conversions and whether or not there's other technologies that are available at that time. It's, it is a, it's going to take a long time. It's going to be some design iteration. It's not all going to happen overnight, but uh, I think we're going to get there, you know, in the next few years. That's so sure. Yeah, go ahead. I can say the big thing here is because no one's done it, we're kind of trailblazing on this one. And once we've got that path, as you want to say, cut, and you've got sort of a, a way to get to the certification, that path has been cut and done, then it's going to be fine tuning and tweaking that path a bit. And once we do that, then the other aircraft, getting the rest of the aircraft done and doing if it's other different types of aircraft, whatever that is. Once that path is finally blazing from point A to point B from experimental certification, the rest of it can come along pretty yeah, quick. Because one of the big questions right now, and even when people say, how many people are you going to be able to fit in it? It's going to really depend on the battery certification because they really talk about, are you going to be able to monitor the systems or do you have to have containment? And those two different ideals have very different weights attached to them. And so if we don't know what the rules are, if we don't know what the targets are, we don't know exactly what all the components need to have and need to weigh in order to get there. And that's that's a big part of what's happening over the next six months, all the civil aviation authorities are talking to each other and trying to figure out how do they certify the the battery pack so that everybody agrees it's safe for flight. Yeah, because you're up, you're out ahead of the regulators on this one to an extent. There are no rules, right? As you've been explaining just yet. Exactly. They, they're taking comments from industry. Industry is actually working with the regulators to try and figure out how to write these. Uh, so they're, they're talking about a couple of different paths and, and how to get there. But yes, they're they're inviting comments from industry. Industry is ahead of them. Industry is trying to show them where the path is. And then the regulators are saying, well, we'll, we'll maybe go partway down your path and then we're going to cut a slightly different path or whatever they're going to do. But that's in process and could take another few months before we get to, to, uh, to an actual defined goal post for us. Sean, one of the things that always, you know, people are always a bit resistant to change, right? I mean, I think when planes first started flying, people weren't so happy to get on them. Um, You know, new technology always raises questions. How do you convince passengers here that, well, you know, this is just as safe as what you were flying in before, even though it might sound a little different and, um, you know, it might be running differently? Well, so far, judging by the even the turnout at the open house, there's definitely a lot of people that are eager to get on this airplane right now there's uh there's a lot of interest in this um there's definitely going to be some that are hesitant and i think once we get more of them flying and showing that they're safe and they're reliable and everything else then i'm sure more and more will get on board like you said it was just just like back in the day when um henry ford had the ford trimotors flying around some people had hesitant and after they started flying for a bit more and more people started flying and now it's pretty much a very well accepted mode of travel it's interesting because like i'd say back in 2019 i would say that more people were against it than for it but you could see the tide really shift even just over that one year and as we keep going it's like the snowball just keeps picking up Mm -hmm. Uh, more and more people are are supporting it than are worried about it yeah Uh, erica how do you charge these things i mean i'm just picturing this giant charger like you would have at the gas station for uh, you know you have for those for for your tesla for instance this like enormous charger is that how it works 
that kind of effectively. There are these uh, chargers that uh, I don't know if you saw it in any of our pictures. We have a, a charger here. It's just your sort of standard car charger. The, it's portable, except it's kind of big and heavy, so not super portable. But you you plug that into a charge controller, which plugs into the into the airplane. Uh, it should be pretty pretty easy. We're gonna we're working with a, a company called LA Energy. They're helping us look through the different options for the docks. So we're making sure there's going to be power infrastructure available, and we'll have some of these chargers sitting on the docks. Well, Sean and Erica, thank you so much for providing an update. Look forward to seeing what happens next. And uh, yeah, great work. Well, thank you very much. We want to keep on blazing forward. Stay tuned. We hope to have lots more stuff coming up in the news and around here for updates. I look forward to talking to you again. Yeah. There is so much to talk about this year. There are so many things happening around us uh, as the school year approaches, whether it be anxiety about being back in the classroom, and I mean that's anxiety for kids, parents, and teachers alike, whether it's a switchback. I mean, we were hearing today about uh, someone who's never been to their son's school because they haven't been inside, they haven't been in class. I mean, the, the kids have, but the parents haven't been in in quite a while. Um, all kinds of interesting stuff going on this year. Of course, the big one, and we've been talking about it all night, uh, the big one is inflation, cost of living. You know, there was a, a survey done by the uh, Retail Council of Canada. One third of parents expected to pay more for back-to-school shopping this year compared to years past. Um, earlier in the show, we heard about a new Angus Reid survey that says some 56% of Canadians are finding it tough uh, to make ends meet these days because of the rising cost of things and rising interest rates. And that's certainly being felt when it comes back to school. And as parents, how, if and how, can you discuss these issues with your kids? Can you be honest about belt tightening, about what decision-making might be like if there's less money this year or that debt certainly is more expensive so you want to avoid it? Well, to help me with all those questions is parenting expert and family counselor, Allison Schaefer. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Thanks for having me on, Ben. I guess it goes without saying, we've been talking about this on the show for weeks now, that uh, parents are feeling the pinch. Back to school is going to be uh, not only a little more expensive because everything is more expensive these days, but also, I assume, back to school products as well. It's true. We've been uh, reading about this across the board, that inflation has hit every nook and cranny of our economy. I have heard some retailers trying to uh, buy in bulk and drop some prices to be sensitive to that. I've seen a bunch of uh, nonprofit organizations making school supplies available for those in need. So everybody's talking about it and it's not easy out there. What should they, what should people do? I mean, these are one of the challenges, of course, is that back to school is an event in of itself. And all of a sudden you run out and buy all these products that are needed for a certain date. Um, but what advice do you have for parents this year, given that uh, they may find themselves, they may find their money isn't uh, stretching quite as far as it did last year? Take some good planning um, before you go out and hit those retail outlets. I think that the best place to start is to have a conversation with your kids about how you're going to approach back to school this year and that we need to keep an eye on on finances. So we're going to work for the first time on a budget. For, for many kids, it will be the first time experiencing a budget. Um, and But before we can really draft a budget, we need to know what, what we have that can be reused from last year and what we need to get afresh. Either it's worn out or you've outgrown or... It's gotten lost or whatever. And so having the big purge, I think, is, is the beginning. Uh, and work with kids. Don't just go into their room and go through their drawers and throw out stuff that you don't like anymore. Uh, you really need to get their involvement in all of this. Um, and so it's going to be the conversation of separating needs from wants. So if they have pencil crayons from last year and they still have some pencil in them, then we don't need a new pack. It's very easy for kids to just want everything shiny, sparkly, new, the latest edition, and that's just not going to hold up this year. So write that full inventory of um, of what you actually have uh, completely without and uh, and then start organizing by which stores you're going to shop at and what would be a reasonable replacement cost for it. Because, I, you know, often I'll, I'll see parents back to school shopping and it looks like they throw one of everything into the basket in the past, at least, you know, it didn't matter whether there were, you know, there was a box of highlighters at home, a new box was coming in because that's what you buy to go back to school, right? 
I, I think that is our old consumer style, and it doesn't help that often parents want to make sure that they aren't hectic or miss, you know, missing some important piece that the teacher expects them to have. So I think in the name of trying to be a good parent, they will often download or grab at the entrance way of the business uh, place a sheet that says recommended items that a grade three should have, recommended items for a grade eight. And of course, they're in the, in the market of selling as much product as possible, so they're going to make a much more extensive list than is probably needed. And again, not taking consideration for what you may still have kicking around the house. It's absolutely fine. And you mentioned something interesting. Because this is a phenomenon that exists for just about everything we're buying these days, depending on the age of the child, it may be worthwhile to sit down and say, hey, here's what's going on out there. Right. So you know, everything's a teachable moment when it comes to parenting. We don't need to protect them from the real world events. We want to prepare them for life. It's just really important, Ben, that when we're talking to kids, that we have an attitude that is positive and optimistic, because what we don't want to do is have children suddenly becoming fearful um, that, you know, has has my parent lost their job? Can they, can they not pay uh, their mortgage payment? Or, or, you know, is something bad going to happen to us? So kids can often fill in the in the blanks and make assumptions that are are far more frightening for the child than it is to just hear like, no, you know what? We're fine. It's our job to make sure you're fine. But when we're talking about purchasing and consumerism this year, it really is that differentiating between the needs and the wants. So I might say, for example, to my daughters, they were much more excited about back to school shopping for clothes than they were for school supplies. Um, But, you know, I would say, hey, listen, I I, I was self-employed. I have been self-employed for years, a single mom with my two daughters. And I would say this September is a little different than other Septembers. We're going to have to keep an eye on the money. I'm responsible for what you need. So, you know, yeah, you need three pairs of pants to go to school. You need sweaters for the fall. And, but I would sort of put it into then the three little kind of buckets that they could understand. It's, you know, there's some people where their price point for a pair of jeans is going to be $30, $40. You know, we can, we're in the middle range, more like the Hudson Bay, Eaton's, Sears kind of category. Uh, and our jeans are this range. And if you want to go high end, whatever, because jeans can go up to $300, running shoes can be $700. So some of these items are, you know, quite fashion fad type things that our kids have been marketed to to want to have and I will just tell my kids I'll pay for for a reasonable amount from what I can manage in my budget and if you would like because that's your need if you want above and beyond that and you want to buy the brand name I'm not going to stop you from doing that but that money's going to have to come from your allowance savings um, babysitting money part-time jobs you know things like that but then there's an understanding that I'm doing my you know financial responsibility of supporting you and the frills and the bonuses are money that you can come up with on your own. Yeah, I remember coming home once, maybe age 12, something like that, announcing that I really liked Lacoste shirts. And my dad saying to me, well, you're welcome to buy yourself Lacoste shirts. Here's how much money I'm going to give you for a shirt. And if you <laughs> want to wear fancier clothes that I have, you'll pay for them yourself. So that was a lesson. I got a paper route, though. It worked. Well, um, yes, well, we say fat dogs don't hunt. If they get everything new and replaced, they don't take care of things as as, as much. And they're going to keep pulling on your pant leg at the, at the stores, you know, begging you to buy it. And if you have a weak moment and you're frustrated, you might just spend money that didn't really make good sense. You had an interesting suggestion about giving, you know, obviously depending on age, giving kids a prepaid credit card saying, hey, go make your own choices, you know, go make your own choices and make sure you don't spend all your money on the wrong thing. Right. So there's, again, the teachable moment that allows them to have some free freedom and some autonomy and independence in their decision making. Uh, but it's still contained and constrained by the fact that it's a gift card. And I'm not usually a big gift card person because I think we know from looking at uh, people's spending habits, we tend to leave money unused on those cards. But that's not the case with teenagers and, and younger kids. So if you've done your little budget for what needs to be replaced and you're, you're going to the office supply store and you give your child that $20 gift card, they will be going up and down the aisle saying, I don't know, do I really want to have that expensive binder when I can get the cheaper one over here and use this money for maybe a fancier water bottle? And you'll start to see what they value and what they appreciate more. Uh, and they start looking at prices. And if they spend it on the water bottle, they're not going to leave it on the schoolyard because they know what it costs to replace. And they, they have a greater sense of ownership around those items. I'm speaking with Allison Schaefer. She's a parenting expert and family counselor. We're talking about in inflation. Of course, we've been talking about that for a while now, but also just the impact it's having this year specifically on back to school shopping for parents. So lots of uh, good advice uh, from Allison there about how to talk to your kids about uh, the challenges sometimes of 
buying stuff for back to school, perhaps giving them more power over that budget so they can decide for themselves how to make some of those choices. Uh, when we come back, some more advice just on how you can save money this year. I gather maybe one of the deals is uh, wait, wait till the back to school rush is somewhat over to buy some of the stuff that you might need if you could afford to. Uh, we'll be back with that. Our guest this half hour is parenting expert and family counselor, Allison Schaefer. We're talking about the impact of inflation on back to school. It is our first in our week-long back-to-school uh, segments that we're doing, just to give you a bit of advice and find out what's going on this year. Of course, inflation is one of the big topics and uh, just the impact that's having on parents everywhere and their ability to uh, buy all the stuff their kids need this year. Uh, you made an interesting suggestion about waiting. I know that's not always possible, but for instance, if you're looking for those higher-end clothes, for instance, maybe you just hold off on those or something replacing electronics, for instance. Maybe that's something you wait a couple of months for. Right. You can spread out your purchases and and make some plans around that. If you know that you need to get a uh, laptop or something, uh, you know, you might want to start putting that money aside now. Again, that's another supply chain item where uh, you you might have an idea of what you want, but if you're getting it refurbished uh, or you've got certain criteria for amount of memory or things like this, models and makes and models, if that's specific to something that you want, you've got to have some lead time in there because those things aren't always the easiest to, to get a hold of. But it also means that it, because September is such an expensive year with everything else, if your kid needs to get set up with a desk or you got, you're going back to buying Metro passes and uh, different sort of one-time purchases, you might find that it's really stretching your, your monthly allowance for uh, just September. So, you know, it's still warm in September. There are things that we could hold off to till October, getting closer in towards Thanksgiving, where you'll see that things go on sales as retailers are starting to clear out the back-to-school stuff and get ready for, um, for uh, winter uh, purchases. Snow, you know, snow coats and boots and things like that. So if you can hold off, you can sort of spread it a little bit longer too, and that can be helpful for families. And then the other thing, Ben, I'd recommend is, uh, and it's really coming in vogue, which is thrifting. There, there's a lot to be said. If you haven't gone thrifting in a while, parents, uh, or if your teens haven't told you that they're interested in doing it, it's it's very popular right now. Kids like it because these are really unique, uh, hard-to-find items, so it feels much more custom to them. And I think it also does make a statement about their principles and their values. And believe it or not, this generation, even though they get marketed to quite heavily, they're also very eco-conscious. And when we talk about keeping things out of landfills, um, trying to make a smaller uh, footprint on Earth, this generation really rises up to that occasion yeah and thrifting can be kind of um i mean i used to go thrifting with my mom it can be kind of an adventure as well right it's the hunt it's the it hunt is. and when you you know and you find that like whatever really old leather jacket that's just so cool it's got a story you know but uh, don't forget there's more than just clothes at a lot of these places too uh in fact uh the um uh, Goodwill and, th- and some of these thrift stores have different policies around advertising, but they do also have binders and books and paper supplies and pens and pencils and things. So it's, it's not just for clothing. Uh, go have a good look around. Yeah, that brought me, that was, I was wondering for those who really need, uh, who might not have access to some of the basics that they actually need this year, um, there must be an awareness out there that this is a pressure, especially this year. Uh, where can parents in those, in that situation turn to? Yeah, we do have actually um, uh, nonprofit organizations that do uh, collect up and then make uh, backpacks that are full of the essential school supplies so, so that no child is without. I heard another teacher in Manitoba saying that they're, they decided to make an uh, internal decision that because they had uh, a, a population where uh, there were so many different people from different backgrounds, they didn't want anyone who was low income or struggling to make ends meet who might get one of the, these knapsacks to be stigmatized and potentially harassed or bullied on the playground. So they decided to roll that in-house and that the school would pay for everybody's books, everybody's binders and pencils, so that there wasn't a differential between the haves and the have-nots in their school to try to equalize that a little bit. So it'll be interesting to hear if that idea uh, works and takes off. She said it also means that if the binders kind of belong to the school, so they could <laughs> tell the kids to treat them with respect and don't just throw your pencil around the room and poke your neighbor, that's school property. Please be kind to your neighbor and please be kind to our pencil. So we'll see how that works out for that community. It's also that time of year. I remember the pressure of going back to school, you know, you uh, and just how do you explain to your kids? And there's always going to be others who have more, who won't be feeling the financial pressures of this year, the way many parents are. Uh, how do you explain to your kids just about, you know, 
understanding what's affordable, what isn't, and that others will always have things that you probably wish you could too. Well, Ben, I think you said it perfectly right there, you know, to, to have our children understand that there are many people of different uh, socioeconomic statuses and that there is never a reason uh, feel badly for how our family is doing, regardless of where we are on that continuum, and uh, that we have safety nets in place in this culture because we care for one another. And sometimes we we might have to use those resources, and and sometimes we give into those for other people that are in need when we do our can drives and things. And so I really feel that the conversation is about the tone, so that the children really see that the parents are walking the talk. If the parents themselves are pitying their children or feeling sorry or guilty that they aren't able to provide for their children, the kids really latch on to that and it exacerbates the problem. So I think it's better to, to say to your kids, we're being responsible. This is what we can afford. And uh, this is how we're putting our money into buckets. Uh, some other people actually share their family budgets with their kids so that the kids have an understanding and can be part of the decision-making of you know where we might cut back so that we can do other things. Um, so as so long as you're saying it in a way that is inviting your child into understanding, um, but never to put fear in them that you can't manage. I think that's just really huge. Any last words of advice to parents this year? This is going to be a slightly different year than years. Well, actually, it's, it's been different for years now, hasn't it? This is the third September in a row that's going to be a bit different from the past. But any advice to parents specifically uh, this year? Yes. I mean, the, I guess the, the most important thing that I would say is that we've been through so much, as you say, that this last little bit seems like a, a hurdle. But the truth is, you've got proof positive. Look at what your kids have managed, being thrown into online learning, not being able to see their friends. Uh, yes, a lot of proms were canceled, things were taken away. But if anything, that just showed that our kids have resilience and that there is a path back to, to normal. And we're on it. And that includes that this isn't the last back to school. There'll be other that are different uh, and just to remind them that we've been successful through all of these and we will through this again this year too. Allison Schaefer, thank you so much for your time tonight. Thanks for having me on, Ben. 